I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters in Christ, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by servants. And do not complain as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the end of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and God will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out, so that you might be able to endure it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable before you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. She pulled me aside and said, you will never find a church quite like this one. This longtime elder said it to me as I was preparing to finish my ministry with them. The group around her nodded in agreement, apparently a bit sad for me in this reality, as they thanked me and wished me well. This truly faithful soul had not been the first one to say something like this to me during my time in that congregation. Never once did it sound haughty or disparaging of others, but it was always offered with full confidence that this was the inevitable truth. There was something unique about that place, so believed the folks there, a form of ministry and community that could not be easily replicated. This is the quiet and sometimes not so quiet pride that we take in the places and the people that we love dearly. I am sure we have said this about this community here at SPC. We bubble over with our love of and our fidelity to the institutions into which we have poured our hearts and souls, those communities where we have found a purpose, grown in our understandings, been cared for, been challenged to learn and engage with the world with depth, in short, those places that we have made a home. In this season of March Madness, I see the flags waving from the porches in the neighborhoods 
If that's not what indicates our love of our alma maters, it's surely the College Challenge Day on WHYY. Neighborhoods and villages, cities and surely boroughs draw from us a deep sense of commitment and pride for being the best places to live and call home. Governments and nation states cultivate identity that is intentioned to distinguish citizens of one apart from another. And as we well know, can just as easily turn one against another to the tragedy and horror that we are witnessing today. This grasping towards exceptionalism exists at nearly every level of community life. And the local church, we surely know, is no exception. If the call to discipleship is total loyalty to Christ and to Christ's mission in this world, the local church is the hands and the feet and the heart and the soul of how we live this out. One of the identities that we actively seek for in the church is truly a community that is set apart. Set apart from the loyalties that grab at us from other parts of our life. Set apart for a particular calling, a special purpose, a place in the world that is unique. This identity comes to us, the church, honestly. The Apostle Paul addresses this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. He weaves together the fledgling faith of the Hebrews in the wilderness and the fledgling faith of this Gentile community post-resurrection, likening the baptismal waters of Christ to the freedom waters of the Red Sea. Paul points out that they are not that much different from one another. Indeed, the Hebrews are the spiritual forebears, or the Corinthians, according to Paul. In fact, it is wise for these new followers of the way to learn from those who preceded them, both the good and the not so good. Point by point, Paul continues to lift up the faltering steps of those ancestors, from idolatry to sexual immorality to testing God, and finally, woefully, to complaining against God. A consequence for each act from a God frustrated by the complacency and impatience and impertinence of their people. It seems tidy in our minds, like the parent who warns their child to think about the consequence of your actions, only for the child then to face those consequences with providential immediacy. It is the way our minds are trained to think. Cause and effect, question and answer, reason that underlies each of these. Except that we well know that our world does not work like this. Science tests each question for a multiplicity of results on each one, probing for us to re refine and revise the questions we ask. Philosophy responds to one question with another, probing us to think deeper, to carefully examine the assumptions that we make. And still, we seek order. We desire for our world to make sense. So then builds our fervor to predict for or to protect ourselves from that which feels unpredictable, all that scares us. 
This is where exceptionalism comes in. I certainly can't be afflicted or affected or harmed because I am fill in the blank. That is not the type of Christian that I am because I attend or, or we believe I would never, this would not happen where we live to the people we know, to the spaces we inhabit because God rests his grace on us. We stand apart. Except in January or February of two years ago, as we in our house listened to the radio over breakfast or in the car, Bill and I constantly reassured, there's nothing to worry about. Nothing like this has happened here in a long time. Clearly, we did not know the ground upon which we stood, and we fell quick. <laughs> it's the same impulse that caused the crowd in Luke's gospel to pipe up with questions for Jesus, bringing to him the headline news of that day, a recent slaughter of the Galileans by Pilate who just didn't like the way they practiced their religion. And to this Jesus countered, do you think because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Or what about that other story in the week, in the news last week, the ones who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Was their sin worse than yours? Was their destruction somehow warranted? It brings up extremely uncomfortable questions if we extrapolate out. Did the people of Ukraine do something in particular, to deserve the total disregard for their lives and livelihoods? Did those who lost lives and homes and loved ones in the condo collapse in Florida this last summer behave in some way to warrant this destruction? The questions can become unending when we begin them, and the answer is a qualitative no. No, of course not. We are horrified to even hear it. A number of years ago, while picking up a visiting lecturer from the airport in town for a weekend series at the church, I made small talk asking how the flight had been. She assured me that all was smooth, even though the storm, a storm had threatened. I routinely responded, thanks be to God for that, to which she surprised me. And she caught out my casual assumption in that moment by gently pushing back. I try not to tangle God up into the things like an on-time flight or pending storms. I'm not comfortable attributing to God the inverse if things went awry. The truth we know about the war raging in Ukraine is that there is power that corrupts so fully as to turn one nation against another, one leader against millions, to the point of one's inability to even see the other as human. The truth we know about buildings collapsing is that there are years of potentially cutting corners of disrepair, of missed or ignored signals and conditions beyond control that lead to a tragedy of such large scale. The truth we know about these things is that there are layers of complexity so deep that simply to simplify suffering, 
to the bad decisions of those who experience it is to both make God vindictive and small and to make us watching somehow capable of making decisions that keep us invulnerable. Both of our scripture stories this morning call to question any hint of exceptionalism that we might harbor as individuals and as nations, but more importantly, as those who call ourselves disciples. Here is where we come back to the church. For Jesus spoke to those who were curious to faith, and Paul picked up with this earliest form of the church in Corinth. They spoke to something they saw, this exceptionalism creeping in. But we are the descendants of the people who walked with Moses. We share the bread and cup of Christ. We are blessed in our identity. We know all of the right words. We are known for our righteous acts. We are set apart. You will never find a church a people quite like this one. One of the things that my colleague Joyce has said that sticks with me as particularly important for us to hold on to in these days is that the church of Jesus Christ has a unique and particular mission that is given to it. It is a mission that is different than all other organizations and affinity groups and alumni associations and communities to which we belong. The church's mission is to simply, or not so simply, follow Christ. This means taking on the particular identity of being the body of Christ in the world. And the body of Christ, as we witness him again and again in scripture, is consistently in places of vulnerability, among communities of suffering, presiding at tables of sinners. And yet, while Christ himself is exceptional, the act of God with us is miraculous. The church itself is not. The church itself is a gathering of people, you and me, who earnestly want to do our best and who know that in order to do so, we are fully dependent upon the grace of God. We live in God's world and act for it, for good and for evil. What makes us unique is that we come together every single week and we tell the truth before God and one another that we need help. Every single week in our time, we confess, first aloud and then in silence, speaking to the ways that we flirt with power, that we forget our neighbor, that we are comfortable with complacency, that we make idols of our desires, that we participate in systems that actively harm others. We confess that we are reliant upon God's grace, not because we are afraid of what God will do to us if we are not, but we see what we can and have done when we have tried to be our own saviors. This is the beginning of the repentance that Christ calls for. 
It is a necessary tending that leads to the fruit that we are called to bear. Honestly and vulnerability, this is what helps us to endure every test and every fail and every failure so that we may not be overtaken, but that we might stand and help each other to stand. And more than stand, that we might live bearing witness amid all that is battered and broken and weary and worn, that the most exceptional of all is the love that God has for this world, a love that is both impatient and never-ending. To this, we say, we will never find a God quite like this one. And on this ground, we can stand firm. Thanks be to God.